Well, this morning we step into the last chapter that we will be covering in our sermon series called The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master. We've been experiencing together Jesus' last night with his disciples as he prepares them for his cross, his final instructions for them, his last moments together with them, without this tornado of activity that is his arrest, torture, and crucifixion. For the last few months, we've actually slowed down in this last moment of Jesus with his disciples to let his final words to them in this calm before the storm affect us, confront us, maybe even change us. This is the kind of effect that last words can have on us. There's no shortage of last words to be found online as I was doing a Google search. You see, from personal stories of people on blogs and forums to the recording of last words that are made famous precisely because of the famous people that made them, we are drawn to words like this, whether in our own personal lives or even looking them up, because they they have this sort of reverence A belief that in these last words we might be able to find the clarity that only death can bring and apply it in our lives. I'll share a few examples that I found. On her deathbed, Emily Dickinson, by then unable to speak, wrote these final words up on the screen, I must go in for the fog is rising. Poetic, dark, her description of what she was experiencing in her transition from life to death. On the other hand, Harriet Tubman chose these beautiful words of a spiritual to communicate what she believed was happening to her in death. Swing low, sweet chariot, the Lord coming to carry her home. One final example from Frida Kahlo, the famous Mexican painter whose last journal entry actually featured this black angel and then these last words, I joyfully await the exit and I hope never to return. Morbid, dark, sobering last words that cause us to examine our own lives. Last words have a way of revealing what people believed about life and about death. They're haunting clarifying, revealing, and at times even insightful. And so as we continue to slow down to listen to Jesus and the last words he has for his disciples, for his church, for us, as he approaches the cross, we approach something haunting but comforting, clarifying but expected, revealing, insightful, beautiful. We encounter something more than words. We encounter the Son of God praying to God the Father in the presence of his disciples, and he wants them to listen to his prayer. He wants them to to listen to him pour his heart out to the Father. You see, the the passage we're about to read, the the start of it, it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire New Testament, right? It's an incredible look at what was heavy on his heart as he approached the cross. So for these next four Sundays, we're going to be taking this long prayer. We're going to enter that prayer with Jesus and his disciples to find out what Jesus says about life and death glory and following him, truth, joy, the future of what will eventually be known as the church, the people of God. So this morning, we actually start with the first five verses of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And if you're new to the Bible, I'm really glad you're here, right? So the Bible is not just a book. It's actually a collection of 66 books. And this morning, we're going to be in one of those books called the Gospel of John. And if you have a Bible, it'll be close to the end of it. But don't worry if you don't have one. The words will be up on the screen. And we believe that God through his word, is our final authority for everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so with that said, I would encourage you, if you're able, to stand, whether you're here with us on campus or online, as we read these words of God from John 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, 
that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is God's word. You may be seated. As the hour continues to count down to Jesus' cross, Jesus turns from looking out at each of his disciples to looking up to his Father in heaven. And he prays. In these five verses, as Jesus begins to pray, his mind and heart turn to glory. The glory that he has brought to the Father in his life. The glory that he will bring to the Father in his death. The glory he had before time began. And his disciples are eavesdropping. He knows they're listening and he kind of wants them to listen. He wants them to be shaped by his prayer, even as he reasserts his alignment with God's will as it will unfold in just a few hours. Thousands of years later, we also eavesdrop on a Sunday morning in church, hoping to be shaped by Jesus' prayer. And here's how the beginning of this prayer aims to shape us this morning. If you're taking notes, here is the sermon summarized in one sentence, and no, that doesn't mean you can't listen to the rest of it. Here is the sermon in one sentence. True life is knowing the true God glorified in Jesus. True life is knowing the true God glorified in Jesus. You see, as Jesus prays, he redefines terms we are familiar with, terms like glory and life, terms we may be used to using, but that in God's vocabulary mean vastly different things, right? Like uh, Inigo Montoya in Princess Bride says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. For our time this morning, I want us to walk through these five verses and figure out what these terms really mean by coming to grips with these two redefinitions of Jesus, true glory and true life. You see, we so often define glory for ourselves with the the grammar of power. We so often define life for ourselves with the language of success or wealth or pleasure or relationships or on and on, whatever else comes to mind. But as Jesus prays, He takes our definitions of glory, our definitions of life, and he shows us what true glory and true life really are. So let's start where Jesus starts with the redefinition of true glory. And my question before we step into the text is, what comes to your mind when you think of glory? Maybe you think of these uh, modern-day gladiators that we call professional sports. Or maybe you think people going down in a blaze of glory. Maybe you think about your own history the glory days when you were in your prime. Whatever our minds and our hearts are drawn to when we think of glory, we always struggle to separate glory from the grammar of power, at least the way we define power. But the grammar of power is redefined by Jesus here as he begins to pray because for Jesus, for God, for God's people, power functions according to God's grammar, not the world's. Let's look at what I mean. Look at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. You see, Jesus has made it a habit, if you're tracking with the story, to pray throughout his life. So this moment should come as no surprise, right? He often snuck away early in the morning to pray. He taught his disciples how to pray. Look at how long he prays here. As we read, I want you to take note of the reasons that seem to lie underneath his prayer. Right? He's seeking to teach his disciples and to wrap up everything he has told them, even as he seeks to reconnect with the Father in this moment. This isn't just any prayer. 
This is an important capstone to his life's work. He prays about the same things he has just taught them. He prays about glory and their mission, about unity and joy, about obedience and love. He prays for his mission as he approaches its completion. He prays for his disciples as they prepare to face life on the other side of the cross. And then after a few days of doubt, face life on the other side of the resurrection. In this moment, Jesus has this uh, tone of resolve, of obedience. Pretty soon, though, that tone is going to mix with the horror of what's about to unfold on the cross. And by then, he will actually return to the Father in prayer in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, this time in agony, but still resolved in obedience, resolved for our salvation. But now, in our text, he is resolved, having just told his disciples, if you remember from chapter 16, verse 33, 33, I have overcome the world. And out of that, he prays. Now, Father, the hour has come. You see, 26 times the hour is mentioned in the Gospel of John. And since chapter 12, we're in chapter 17, since chapter 12, Jesus has been saying that the hour has actually come. Until then, he had been saying his hour had not yet come. It was not yet time for what was about to unfold. But in chapter 12, something significant shifts. The nations start coming to Jesus. And the hour has now come. The plan is being set in motion. And now as he approaches the culmination of the plan, he repeats to God and to himself that the hour has come. I'll stop right here and say how incredible that Jesus turns to his father in prayer in this moment. Right, Knowing what's coming, because it is coming, he prays. I don't know about you, but so often I struggle with the truth that God is sovereign that God is in control, that what happens is his will. And, and my belief in that truth devolves often into a question of, well, then why should I even pray? Right? If he's in control, if nothing's going to change, why pray? But that's not where Jesus' mind goes in this moment. It is precisely because the Father is sovereign, precisely because the Father is in control, that Jesus prays. God's sovereignty does not discourage prayer. It motivates it. TVC, do we pray because God is sovereign? Do we pray that he might keep us faithful and obedient as his will unfolds in our lives? Do we pray for the glory of God that what happens in our lives would glorify him? And do we actually mean that? Jesus does. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You see, by this point in the story, Jesus has so tied death and sacrifice to the idea of glory that we know what he's asking here, right? He is asking for the cross. He is asking for what he knows is coming, for what has already been planned. He is asking for it, not in terms of defeat, like he's resigned to it coming, but redefining it as the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, the glory of God. He is asking to be glorified in crucifixion. You see, the plan has always been the cross. I've said this multiple times from this stage. It has always been death. It has always been glory. But notice how Jesus asks to be glorified in our text, in, our, in his prayer. He does not ask for it for his own sake. Did you notice that? He asks to be glorified in order to glorify the Father. There's no self-interest here. There's no self-absorbed agenda that lies behind Jesus' request in these five verses. He wants God to be glorified in what's about to happen. And not only is he not self-absorbed, but he also, if you didn't catch it, makes a clear claim that he is God. 
Let me show you what I mean. You see, Jesus leaves no room for this misguided idea that he never claimed to be divine. When he asks for glory, Jesus knows exactly what he is asking for. He's asking for something that's available to God alone. I'll show you what I mean. Isaiah 42, 8 records God explaining something very important about his character. This is what he says. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God doesn't mess around. He doesn't let us mess around. He deserves all the glory because he is the only true God. He is the only true creator. There are no other gods. There are no other competitors. Jesus is not here trying to make a play for the throne. It is already rightfully his. He is God in the flesh. True glory is defined by Jesus in this first verse as power shaped by a cross-nailed Messiah rather than a conquering king. A cross-nailed Messiah rather than a conquering king. Fast forward to the end of our passage, and Jesus actually returns back to this idea of glory, and he further defines what true glory is. So before I jump into verses 2 through 3, I actually want us to continue to look at how Jesus fully defines true glory in verses 4 through 5. So jump ahead with me to verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus has asked the Father to glorify him in the cross in order that he might glorify the Father. But now, in his prayer, he flashes back, And he describes the glory that he has already brought the Father. Don't miss this, right? Because the the, the cross of John 19 was the ultimate display of God's glory, but it wasn't the beginning of that display. You see, God had already begun to display his glory all the way back in John 1 through the incarnation. The Son of God taking on flesh. I'll show it to you. Look at John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation, when God the Son became a human being, was a display of the glory of God because it was a revelation of God himself. That's what the text is saying, right? In coming to live with humanity, God revealed himself. God showed who he was. In other words, he showed his glory. And it is in this revelation the revelation that Jesus communicates in himself, where God is most clearly known. And the incarnation was just the beginning. If you track through the Gospel of John, during his life, Jesus did a number of miracles. And here's how John describes some of them. In chapter 2, Jesus turns water to wine, and John records that this was the first of the signs in which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then again, later on, when he hears of the sickness of his friend Lazarus, John records Jesus explaining, when he first hears about it, that this happens so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And if you follow that story, in just a few verses, Lazarus actually dies, and Jesus approaches his tomb to resurrect him from the dead. Before he does that, he encourages his sister Martha, Lazarus' sister Martha, who's struggling with all this, and he says this to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Lazarus comes to life and by so doing displays the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father. Jesus has brought the Father glory in each of these moments. He has brought the Father glory in each moment of healing, in each moment where he has freed people from physical and spiritual sickness, where he has liberated those that were captive to demons, those captivated by human religious traditions. 
And as he approaches the culmination of his saving work, as he finishes the work he was given to complete on earth by dying on a cross, Jesus starts speaking like it's as good as done. I have glorified you on earth because it is as good as done. Jesus is not turning back. He will glorify the Father on earth by finishing the work he was given to do. His entire life has been completely and without hesitation dedicated to God's glory by doing God's work as he has been assigned. True glory is defined by Jesus in this verse, in verse 4, as the completion of the work that was assigned to him. But I don't want you to miss this for us either. Right? Because as believers, we not only experience the salvation that only Jesus can bring, we also follow in his footsteps. And it is this same kind of unwavering dedication that should define every true believer, every real follower, every disciple. And it defines us because it defined him. It defines us because by this commitment, Jesus made it possible for us to be saved, to be brought from death to life, to be back in relationship with God. A salvation that was only possible because of who he is. And here's why I say that. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus connects true glory not only to what will happen, but to what already happened in his life. We've already talked about the incarnation when the Son of God came to earth and became human, became Jesus. But here Jesus gives us a peek even further back into eternity past, into a time where the world was not, but God was. Into a time where the Son of God had the glory that he is once again asking for. In essence, Jesus is asking the Father to reverse, undo, return to him what he had before his incarnation. In another book of the Bible, Philippians, we learn more about what happened when the Son of God came to earth. Right? It says that he emptied himself. He did not claim or use the divine attributes that made him God. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was restricted to where his feet could lead him, how far he could go on a boat. He had to learn and grow in understanding. The all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing God became human. He emptied himself of access to those attributes. He emptied himself of his glory, and now the son asked the father to return the glory to him. But I want us to be careful here, right? We know from the rest of the Bible that Jesus is not asking for something here like a a de-incarnation, right? It's not like he's shedding his human body. When the son of God took on a body, it was for forever, Right? He died as the God-man, was raised and transformed as the God-man, and now reigns in heaven as the God-man. But he has been restored to the glory that he gave up to be the God-man on earth. And that is what he's asking here for. Right? In this request, Jesus communicates two very important realities that I don't want us to miss. The first is that he is not created. And the second is that the Son and the Father share glory. You see, Jesus has always existed. If he had glory before time began... You kind of have to exist before time began, right? He is God-made flesh. The Son and the Father share glory. And God already said he's not going to share his glory with any other. He is God. God from eternity past who entered time to save us from our sins. And here in this moment as he prays, he looks for glory not just in what has already been done, not even just in heaven, but remember verse 1. He looks for glory in the last place any of us would ever look for it, on a cross. 
Where do we look for glory to, you see? Are we letting Jesus define what true glory is for us? You see, glory that is defined by a cross, a picture of violence and torture, an emblem of evil, a shameful way to die, at least in the eyes of Rome, but a glorious way to live in the eyes of God. The cross is the love of God on full display. This demonstration of God's glory in loving us all the way to the end, where his glory is on full display, not in a blaze of light, but in horrifying agony. The victory, the triumph, the glory of the cross, which would be transformed into the victory, the triumph, the glory of an empty tomb in just three days. That is the definition of true glory. In this passage and throughout the gospel, true glory has been redefined by Jesus with words like sacrifice, death, cross. True glory is a cross-nailed Messiah. True glory is accomplishing the will of God. In other words, true glory is the gospel on full display. That is how Jesus redefined glory for us in this prayer. But glory is also tightly interwoven with another redefinition of Jesus in this passage. In verses 2 through 3, Jesus redefines what true life is like. He explains what the good life is. Right? Life that is not defined by success, security, wealth, or any other measure. No, Jesus says life, true life, is defined by who you know. Look at verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Glorify your son, Jesus says to the Father, that your son may glorify you. And the reason he can ask for that is given here in verse 2. Because what he is about to do, the cross he is about to face, is the foundation of the mission he was given. To use the authority given by the Father to give eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. Let me unpack this for us. You see, the authority that Jesus is talking about here is not the authority that is his by the fact that he is the Son. Right? If it is, all of a sudden we find ourselves flirting a little bit with heresy. Right? We're getting into some dangerous waters because about Jesus, because if it is, then that means that somehow the Father is the source of the Son's very identity as God. And the Bible is very clear, even the first chapter of the Gospel of John, that from the very beginning, the Son was, and from the very beginning, the Son was God. So no, the authority that Jesus is talking about here is not the authority that is just His because He is the Son. There's something different here. The authority Jesus is talking about is authority given based on His obedience to the Father on the cross. It is an obedience that has been planned since before time began, a gospel-enabling work that was plan A from before the first day of creation, an authority not given by a title but by a life-giving sacrifice. It is blood-bought authority given by the Father to Jesus over everyone. It applies to all people, regardless of where they were born, when they were born, what skin color they were given, what language they speak, what nation they're a part of, Jesus has authority over all people. And look at what the text says about how he exercises that authority. He exercises that authority on behalf of all people in order to give eternal life. Jesus flexes his authority not to manipulate, extort, or deceive, but to give. To give eternal life. But, and don't miss this, the text is also clear here, to give eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. 
right? The purpose of God's gift of authority to Jesus to grant eternal life is that Jesus might make eternal life effective for those that the Father gave him. In this moment, the salvation of all of those who have been chosen by the Father is inextricably connected and tied to the glorification of the Son, the glorification of the Father, the glorification of God. Our salvation, TVC, is inextricably bound to the glory of God. Do you know how crazy that is? That God has tied his glory to our salvation. That God has made it so that the very act of coming to him, of being saved by Jesus, of reestablishing relationship with him, is his glory. And not only that, not only are we living testimonies to the glory of God, but if you see the grammar of the text, we are also the Father's gift to the Son. All who believe in Jesus are gifts that the Father gives to Jesus that he might give us eternal life. That's just crazy to me that God would tie himself in that way to us and our faith and our lives, that he would tie us to his glory. So what is this eternal life that I keep talking about then if it's so important to the glory of God? Well, thankfully, Jesus answers it for us right in verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is why I said that Jesus defines true life by who you know. Here it is. Eternal life, true life is simple. Know the true God and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. In other words, what Jesus is explaining here is that in order to have life, We have to know God, and to know God, we have to know Jesus. There is no way around it. Jesus is the one sent by God. If he is who John 1.14 says he is, the word made flesh, the glory of God in a human body, then he is not just a way to God. He's not just some nice alternative. We can't reduce his cross to just paving another way back to God. He is the only way to know God. He is the only way to eternal life. But, but why is Jesus so hung up on knowing then? Right? Isn't there some kind of experiential thing we can do here? Well, it's not just that Jesus in John 17 is so hung up on knowing. The Bible is actually hung up on knowing. If you track the story from beginning to end, you see human beings were created from the very beginning to know God. And not just know about God, not just have this uh, intellectual grasp on all things God, but know God in relationship, in daily life, in actual real day in and day out relationship. And we did enjoy this relationship at one time. We did know God in the beginning. And like so many stories with us in it, we broke it right at the beginning. You see, like the insatiable desire of every baby ever to put everything in their mouth, our naive ancestors decided that they knew better and they ate what God had commanded them not to eat. They disobeyed. They made up their minds that there was another way to life, that they could carve out their own path. Little did they realize until the effects started to wear on them that what God said would happen actually did. That the path that they had carved out led not to life, but to death. No longer did they get to know God in relationship. And the world has spiraled downward ever since into that same thinking, that same acting, that same rebellion, that same sin, generation after generation. And yet generation after generation, God has sent people to call his creation, his image bearers, these rebels, back into relationship with him. 
back to knowing him. One of those messengers is a, a prophet named Hosea, and he receives this message from God that names the problem quite clearly. In Hosea 4.6, God says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They're destroyed because they don't know me. And so for centuries, God was building back the way to him. And through another one of his messengers, a prophet named Jeremiah, he describes this way back to him. He describes the path he will lay out brick by brick in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. He says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. They will all know me. Someday I will make a covenant. I will make good on my promise to make it all right again. Someday I will make it so that my people, the people I created, the people that I love, can come back to me, can know me. And that way will be paved brick by brick with the forgiveness of their wickedness, the forgiveness of evil. It will be paved because I will no longer hold their sin against them. And it is against this backdrop that we read the first chapter of John. For the Bible says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him, what's that last word, TVC? Known. In comes Jesus, God himself in human flesh, and he makes God known. My people no longer have to be destroyed because they lack knowledge. I will fulfill my promise to make it so that by new hearts and by new minds, my people can know me once again. Jesus makes God known. And this is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus. Because Jesus makes God known. You can't have one without the other. But this is not some otherworldly spirituality that we're talking about here. Right? There's something else incredibly important about this truth, that eternal life turns on who you know, and it is the answer to how we come to know. You see, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, is only possible by the Son in his word, the Bible. It's the only reason I'm even here, TBC. Right? I'm not just trying to talk to you about some neat old book that I find very interesting. It is only possible to know God, how he has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture, of the Bible. There are no extra books, no spiritual experiences, no out-of-body moments that will communicate anything more than what God has communicated to us in His Word. It is the final rule for everything that's related to faith and living a godly life. It is the measuring stick, the ruler, the level against which we align our lives. To know God, you must know Jesus, and to know Jesus, you must know His Word. And not just in some uh, daily Bible reading plan that we check off on the list. I know, I know, Eric, we're doing a daily Bible reading plan at the, the church. Don't say anything bad about it. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I myself am doing this Bible reading plan, and I encourage you to do the same. What I am speaking against is the mentality that I so easily fall into, and that maybe we all kind of struggle with, where we treat the Bible just like any other book that I can read another chapter from and place it back on my nightstand. Or even worse, another book that some of us avoid reading because we don't like reading. Or it's not captivating enough. It's kind of boring. The Bible is God's way of telling us where to find eternal life. True life. 
It is all within these pages, all accessible to you. It has been translated in, in more languages than I can count. It is the reason people risk their lives to get this word to others. Because in its pages, by the Spirit, there is life to be found. I want you to listen to this quote by Jen Wilkin from her incredible book called Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. Spoiler alert, it's not just a book for women. She writes this. The Bible does not want to be neatly packaged into 365-day increments. It does not want it to be reduced to truisms and action points. It wants, us, it wants it to introduce dissonance into your thinking, to stretch your understanding. It wants it to reveal a mosaic of the majesty of God, one passage at a time, one day at a time, across a lifetime. TVC, the Bible is designed to mess us up. Right? The Bible is designed to push, pull, prod, and provoke us to see God as he truly is, slowly and over time for our entire lives. Knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is only possible by the Son in his word, the Bible. Look at verse 3 again. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is who you know. The only true God, not just any old God, right, but the only true God who we know in and because of Jesus. TVC, we didn't choose the way we would get to know him. We don't get to build the path or determine which route is correct. We've already tried to do that, and we've messed that up royally. God gets to decide what that path is. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ alone. Knowing God means knowing Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself just told his disciples this in a few chapters ago when we, were, we actually preached this a few weeks ago. When he first sat down to them to give his final instructions, he is the only way. He is the only path to know God. He is the only route back to true life. In John 10, 9 through 10, Jesus says it like this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I'm not talking about how big your garage is. I'm not talking about how much money is in your bank account. I'm not talking about how successful you are in your job, what kind of neighborhood you live in, what school your kids go to. Life to the full is knowing God and knowing Jesus. His mission has always been to be the path back to God. The gate that opens the door to knowing God, that opens the door to life, true life, eternal life. But, but defining eternal life, defining full life as knowing God and defining what it means to know God reveals something even deeper about eternal life and what it is. And this is what I've been so excited to get to here. I know I've been a little slow in getting here, but Jesus, you see, Jesus doesn't just come that those who believe in him would have life to the full later. He doesn't just come that those who follow him would enjoy eternal life at some point in the future. No, in this prayer and in the entire gospel of John, Jesus blurs the separation between now and then. You see, in Jesus, eternity has entered time. In Jesus, eternal life is not just about life that lasts forever, but about life with the one who defines forever. Eternal life is not just about quantity, but about quality. Or to say it another way, eternal life is not for later. Eternal life starts right now. 
Eternal life starts now as we come to know the only true God. Eternal life starts now as we come to know the Savior that He has sent, Jesus Christ. As we grow in our knowledge, and when I say knowledge, I mean a complete knowledge, right? Intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. As we grow in our knowledge of God in that way, we get a taste of eternity. Knowing God is an experience that so changes us, so reconstructs us, that we are inserted into a life, an existence, a way of being that we could have not found any other way but Jesus. The question for us, TBC, is are we experiencing that kind of eternal life here and now as we anticipate the there and then? Are we actually experiencing the life that God has for us? The only way to experience it, here's the secret, the only way to experience more of it is to grow to know God more. Pretty simple, right? I didn't have to hide that from you. I've been telling you about the whole time, right? To grow in our love for and engagement with the Bible. To step further into our experience of God together as a body, in community, empowered by the Spirit to live out His life-altering, death-defying, eternal life-producing gospel wherever He points us. Jesus prays that we would, throughout this chapter, live that eternal life now. And it starts right here with His redefinitions of the words glory and life. It starts right here with Jesus redefining for us what true glory and true life are in the economy of God. What true glory and true life are in the kingdom of God, among the family of God. True life is knowing the true God glorified in Jesus. This is the center, not only of this text this morning, but of our faith. As I was writing this, I, I basically said, oh, I, I've said this before. This is the center of our faith. You guys have probably heard that. And it's basically because I just try to think of new ways to say the exact same thing to you every Sunday morning. This is the center of our faith, the only way to live a life worth living. To ever find any kind of life in the first place is to know the only true God who has revealed himself, who has shown his glory in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who defines not just those words, life and true glory, but when we come to know him, to believe in him, he is the one who redefines us. No longer are we defined by our sin by what we have done, by our rebellion against God, by our blatant ignorance against our Creator, now we are defined by Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield, another author I really like to read, puts it like this. She says, our real identity is not in the sin we battle, but in the Savior we embrace. This morning, there are two ways to apply this text in our lives, to apply this prayer in our lives. Embrace the Savior and embrace His gospel mission. Embrace the Savior who identified with us that we might identify with Him. Embrace the Savior who frees us from sin and enables us to once again come to know God, to once again be back in relationship with Him. Embrace the Savior and the cross on which He saved us. Recognize, acknowledge, and don't shrink away from God's cross. It's the only way that we or anyone else gets to come into relationship with God. And so often we struggle with this, right? We read the cross and, and, and we almost act like we're embarrassed that God decided to go do it this way. We try to explain it away or soften what actually happened. We look for some kind of escape clause in Scripture to explain how someone could be saved by, by being genuine enough, being good enough, or just God's love being expansive enough that, that they, they don't have to go through the cross in Jesus. All the time we spend trying to get around the cross and we miss the beauty and the love that's at the cross. We miss what God did, that he really did give everything 
for us. Embrace the Savior and embrace his gospel mission. The good news of Jesus, the work he began on earth and worked through his cross and resurrection, continues through his disciples and church up until now, cannot be reduced to some kind of glorified insurance policy that we cash out in eternity someday. Eternal life starts now. And it starts with a life that has a full and complete grasp that Jesus' gospel mission affects every area of our lives. It affects what we say, what we do, no matter what our job is, how we make decisions about everything from where we live, who we marry, what we do with our money. We have to embrace his gospel mission in every area of our lives, including and especially within the body of Christ. Embracing his gospel mission means deliberately engaging in it. Like one preacher I read put it, says, neither you nor I did God a favor by showing up to church today. I read that and I was like, okay, I'll put that in there, but God, that kind of hurts. We aren't called just to show up on Sunday mornings. We are called to show up and be in it. To do hard things. To love hard people. To pray with purpose and with power. To talk about Jesus. To make tangible the love and mercy and grace of Jesus by serving. To demonstrate the hospitality of the gospel by welcoming people into our homes and into our lives. We are called to be in it. Be the church Embrace the gospel mission of Jesus. John 17, the entire upper room scene we've been in, they feel like final words, right? They have this tone, but but they aren't Jesus' true final words. You see, John 19.30 actually tells us Jesus' final words on the cross. Those final words were, it is finished. The prayer he prayed in John 17.3 was fulfilled. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, having finished the work that you gave me to do. He made eternal life possible, redefining glory and life, redefining our lives with his glory. And if you're a Christian today, the question that stands before us in the middle of all my other questions is, are you living out that eternal life today? Are you embracing Jesus' gospel mission? Are you embracing the Savior as he has revealed himself to be? But if you're not a Christian this morning, I plead with you to embrace that Savior who took that cross for you, not just for some generic idea of you, but for you. He knows your name. He knows what you've been going through. He knows what life is like. He has cried tears just like yours. He has agonized. He has been tempted. Embrace your Savior. He's come for you. As we pray, I want us to reflect on that reality, that Christ died for us. And it was glorious. It was glorious that Christ was raised from the dead, and it was glorious. And as we prepare for communion, may we remember that glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we pray in response to your word and we say thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us all the way to the end. Everything that happens is for your glory. And nowhere is that seen more clearly than at your cross. You are our God, our joy, our delight. 
you are the rightful king. And as we respond to you by singing, as we prepare our hearts for your table, as we respond to you in prayer and, and giving and, and reading your word, would you prepare us, not just for communion in a moment, but for this next week as we live out what communion signifies, as we live out your mission and dependence upon your spirit, pointing others and yourse- ourselves to Jesus. Amen. TVC, the core of our walk with the Lord is a deep and enduring trust in Jesus Christ and his death for our sins. This is what glorifies God, knowing him and believing that what he has done in Jesus applies to us. And we approach communion now, seeking to glorify God by proclaiming that belief. And you should have received these elements in a sealed cup on your way in. We continue to participate in this Christian practice of communion in this particular way, remembering the necessity of being shaped with the gospel in this particular way, anticipating the physical risk of COVID, of course. Please wait to open each sealed part. I was trying to speed up as fast as I could. I'll direct us as we open the first layer for the bread and the second layer for the cup. We participate in this Christian practice of communion this morning as a symbol, as a symbol of what Christ has done for us. We proclaim our trust in him and him alone as Savior, and we eat and drink together as familia in Christ as this picture, this object lesson, this rhythmic practice that displays the grace of God as shown in the death of Jesus. Much like our other Christian practice of baptism, communion proclaims the gospel to us, what it took to save us, the breaking of his body, the flowing of his blood, and what it did now that we are saved, drawing us all together around the same table, around the same Savior. We are confronted together with God's love for the unworthy. We are strengthened in our faith because our faith is in the one who gave his body and shed his blood for us. So as we come, I want us to prepare our hearts for this moment to come with true repentance and real trust in Jesus, recognizing what he has done for us. And as we come, I do want you to remember that like the gospel, this table is open for all who believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. It calls every single Christian to come to it, regardless of what differentiates us in society. This table reflects and represents our true gospel unity in Jesus, and yet we come in repentance and faith that this table is a gospel opportunity to confess our sins. You see, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This table is for remembrance, and it is also for confession. So let's prepare our hearts in confession and in remembrance, praying together. As we've been doing in our noontime prayer on Instagram Live, I'm going to be praying with the words of the Puritans out of the Valley of Vision, combining a few prayers to prepare us for communion. So you might recognize some of those words. Let's pray together. Holy God, we confess this morning that we have sinned times without number and been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find your mind in your word, of neglect to seek you in our daily lives. Our transgressions and our shortcomings present us with a list of accusations. But they will not stand against us, for all have been laid on Christ. Would you go on to subdue our corruptions and grant us grace to live above them? Let not the passions of the flesh bring our spirits into slavery again, but God, you rule over us in freedom and power. We thank you. In all honesty, that many of our prayers have been refused. 
We have asked for what is inappropriate and we do not have. We have prayed from lust and been rejected. We have longed for Egypt and been given a wilderness. Would you go on with your patient work, answering no to our wrongful prayers and fitting us to accept it? Purge us from everything that's contrary to your rule. We thank you for your wisdom and your love, for all the acts of discipline to which we are subject, for sometimes putting us into the furnace to refine our gold. No trial is so hard to bear as a knowledge of our sin. If you should give us a choice to live in pleasure and keep our sins or to have them burnt away with trial, would you give us sanctified affliction? Deliver us from every evil habit, everything that dims the brightness of your grace in us, everything that prevents us taking delight in you. Teach us to see in communion your loving purposes, the joy and strength of our souls. You have prepared for us a feast. And though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. As we experience these emblems of Jesus' death, would you help us to slow down and reflect on why he died? Help us to hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to pay for your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. May we take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all that we do for ourselves, gladly and in faith, worship and love, receive our Lord to be our life. In communion, we remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption. We proclaim the assurance of forgiveness, our adoption, eternal life, true glory. As these outward elements feed our bodies, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Open and eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's open and drink together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Holy and loving God, this morning we praise you for what you have done. We praise the Father for loving us and sending the Son to die. We praise the Son for giving his life for us. We praise the Spirit for living in us and empowering us with the same resurrection power that brought Jesus back from the dead. We remember today what you have done, our freedom purchased by your blood. We celebrate that you have made us family. We praise you, King of Kings, as we reenact the gospel in communion. And now we turn to sing your praises together as your church, as your body, as your people.